Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It is Wednesday, October the 13th, 2021. Whew. All right. So, so many places we could start this morning. Uh, let me start with this. Yes, there are supply chain challenges. Yes, uh, there are warnings already about the limited availability of particular consumer goods this Christmas. So, <clears throat> what's on your wish list? Uh, I mean, according to... The Biden administration yesterday, yes, there will be things you cannot get. So that's the big announcement. There will be things you cannot get. Um, that is always true, right? There, there will be things you cannot get. There are things you should not get. There are things you can't afford. There are things you cannot get. So here is my... All right, let's bring the mind of Christ to bear on this particular headline news today about supply chain challenges and things we will not be able to get this Christmas. Let's be people who talk about the real gift of Christmas, which is always available to everyone, everywhere, every year, without exception. Um, And although it costs God everything, costs us nothing. How do you put Jesus on your wish list for Christmas? How do you, how do we cultivate a more fervent desire for Jesus? How do we cultivate a hunger and a thirst, a desire first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness? How do we set our hearts on things that are above? How do we literally bring hope and longing and prayer, a desire for God to bear on our lives? Like, how do we do that? I mean, trust me when I tell you, we cannot pass along to others. I mean, you know, if you're going to think about uh, the gospel, the supply chain of the gospel, right? It's literally generation to generation of Christians passing it along. So we cannot pass along to others what we have not ourselves received. And you certainly cannot receive from God that which we do not desire and pursue. Um, I mean, if you're not receptive, then you're not going to receive it. Like, that's how that works. You're, you're going to break the supply chain of grace. So here's my encouragement in the supply chain conversation about Christmas and, you know, the things on the wish list not being available for immediate delivery. Uh, It's already been delivered. So let's seek God today. Let us receive Christ. Come, let us adore him. You don't have to wait for Christmas. The greatest gift ever delivered has already arrived. And as the world wrings its collective hands that things aren't going to be available this Christmas, there's going to be things we cannot get. Well, how about we redirect the world to the greatest gift ever given, the one wrapped in human flesh and lying in a manger, available to everyone right now, no waiting required. Where in the word are you today? Good place to be today would be the Christmas story. Luke 
chapters one and two, Matthew chapters one and two. Yes, read read the narratives that we love so well in the context of the way the gospel writers have framed it and the genealogy of Jesus and then through his early life. Read Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2 today as you think about your Christmas wish list and how we are going to be the people who are a part of the supply chain of the gospel, never interrupted, no waiting. All right, this is Pastor Appreciation Month. We are partnering with the Billy Graham Association to send one pastor and their spouse on a weekend retreat at the Cove in North Carolina. Lots of you have already entered your pastor at MyFaithRadio.com. Thank you for those testimonies, those good words posted there. As I was reading through um, some of the things that you've posted about the good work that God's good men and women are doing out there in local congregations, uh, I, I it occurred to me that it's important to eulogize people right here and right now. If you've got a good word to say about someone today, go ahead and say it. Go ahead and eulogize uh, the people of faith doing good work today in the world. Pastoral ministry is hard work. Uh, We're going to talk next with Daryl Crouch about some of the questions that pastors are asking today. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I have a great affection for uh, Daryl Crouch. He joins us again today. He works with an organization called Everyone's Wilson, uh, and he is a pastor. Daryl, welcome back. Great to be with you, Carmen. Thanks for having me on and reading my stuff and, and loving pastor so well. Absolutely. You know I love my pastor, um, and I appreciate—I uh, mean, we just this past Sunday celebrated that Justin Tucker, who's one of our associate pastors at the church— um, and he's been there 10 years, and I was thinking to myself as I was driving home from worship, you know, what a blessing to be in a congregation, um, you know, planted some more than 25 years ago now, but, you know, where the pastor is still faithfully serving um, and where other men have come alongside him to serve long-term as associates in our community um, in, a, in a variety of ways. I mean, it's a real blessing, but they are, I know, under stress. Um, I mean, our our church, the church I attend is a healthy congregation, but I also know that the ability, as you observe in your, um, in, in your recent article, the ability of our congregation to, uh, to serve the community and to pursue its mission has changed. Um, so let's talk about that. Your piece is, am I good enough? And four more questions pastors ask. Pastors aren't quitting, but they are asking questions. Let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. They really are. It's a new era of ministry, and and I'm sure there's there's been all kinds of new eras of ministry along the way. So, but certainly a COVID and the social political environment that we're in has created new questions that pastors aren't really, you know, necessarily equipped to to answer right away. I I received a a text message from a local gentleman this week asking me something regarding uh, COVID and uh, vaccines. And I mean, I'm a pastor. I'm not a, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a, I'm not a policymaker. And so I think many pastors are faced with questions that there's just not readily available answers. And uh, then when there are 
there's so much controversy around all of that. And so I think the idea of staying on mission is very important to us as pastors. We really want to stay in our lane of sharing the gospel and showing the gospel, making disciples who will live for the kingdom of God. But doing that is increasingly difficult in this particular environment. And as you mentioned, uh, pastors and church leaders are faced with the reality that the number of people that are engaged at a high level is not what it used to be, um, particularly 18 or 20 months ago. And uh, even before that, we, we saw a decline in what a, a faithful or committed church member looks like in terms of their availability and their frequency in worship and in their engagement in ministry. And um, so now we're faced with the, the idea, what do we have? So having some time with some pastors the other day, they're they know that they're going to be fine financially or, you know, there's there's every indication that they're going to make it financially. But they really don't know what they have. That's kind of what they said. We don't know what we have. We don't know what we can do. And these weren't um, these were larger churches. These were not uh, small struggling churches. These were large churches with large programs in our community. And there's like saying we, we really don't know. We don't know what that looks like in the future. Um, some of the questions that you pursue, and again, we're talking with Daryl Crouch. You can find his Substack um, at Substack.com. You're looking for the For Our City uh, blog. The piece I'm reading today is Am I Good Enough? And four more questions pastors ask. Um, let's start with Am I Good Enough? But then let me go ahead and tell people what the other questions are. How long can I do this? Do I want to do this? How is ministry life shaping my family and me, um, and how can I keep growing? So let's um, let's walk around in those. And the first one is, yeah. you know, the the am I good enough question? Yeah, and that's the that's the sense of inadequacy that uh, Moses faced, and um, so many others have faced. And uh, it is a faith issue. There's no question about that. It's a personal um, wrestling with God issue. There's no question about that. We see Peter struggling to keep his eyes on Jesus. And so there's not, um, this isn't a new question for any of us, but certainly the, um, uh, the, the challenges are, are new. And so there's this sense of, of I, I just can't do this. And the metrics don't look very good. And so I must not be doing this very well. There's not as many people coming. There's not as many people coming to Christ. There's not as many people engaged. And... I've lost some really good friends. I've lost some some uh, church members have moved to other churches or they're not engaged anymore. And so I must there must be something wrong with me. There must be something wrong with my leadership. I may not be up for the challenge. And so that's the, um, the thing that many pastors, I think, go to bed at night um, wondering about waking up in the morning, wondering, uh, am I the right am I the right person for this um, for this job? And um, and if if I'm if I'm not, then what? And if I am, uh, what then what? Yeah. All right. Let's um let's take a very brief pause, and when we come back. Let's uh, let's explore these other questions that uh, that pastors are asking. And Daryl and I are quick to recognize that these are not all the questions that pastors are asking. Um, all pastors are not asking the same questions. Um, your pastor may not be asking these questions at all. Like, we recognize that, um, but we're exploring conversations that we know we're having with pastors right now. 
Um, and we might talk at the end of this list about some of the other questions that, um, that pastors are asking as well. It is Pastor Appreciation Month, so um, let's, uh, let's, let's be considering the role and the responsibility and the challenges that our pastors are facing. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. When I think back over the course of my life, I think of um, a long line of very faithful pastors um, who shepherded congregations um, in places far and wide where I had uh, occasion to live and, um, and grow in my own faith and understanding uh, of myself as a Christian in the world today, love my pastor um, that's currently shepherding the congregation where I attend um, we want to show them our appreciation, and part of that is uh, seeking to understand their lives and what they're, the stress that they're dealing with. So we're talking with Daryl Crouch. He is a pastor. He also shepherds a ministry called Everyone's Wilson. We're talking about a post on his substack called Am I Good Enough? and other questions pastors are asking. So, um, Daryl, just move into the second question here on your list. How long yeah. can I keep doing this? Um, yeah. The second question, pastor. Yeah, it was really, yeah, the, yeah, the pace is uh, really interesting now. Uh, when we went into COVID, you know, everybody's going online and trying to figure out how to upload video, um, you know, content and stay connected. And so, the the regular routines and the rhythms of ministry were really disrupted for for everyone, and they they were in every area of life, obviously. And so now, as we are finding ourselves working through those realities and we're we're back in person and we're back in the office and we're trying to figure out what programming looks like uh, those rhythms still haven't we, we really haven't found those and so again I, I note I remember running in a race a long time ago that I thought was going to be a 10k turned out to be a 5k because of the the weather and the road conditions and uh, everyone around me were experienced runners they they knew what was coming well I didn't I'm, I was a newbie and so uh, man, when when the starting gun went off, people just started sprinting. I mean, it was an all-out sprint, and I was not prepared for that. And I feel like a lot of pastors are sprinting, a, a, not a short race, but a, a really long race, and they're they're wondering how many, you know, how many days in a row can they go um, at this pace. And so uh, I had a friend tell me yesterday, um, listen, pastors. Uh, We've just got to care for ourselves. We've got to take days off. We've got to find some some things to do that are fun. And um, these pastors that I know, they're doing a phenomenal job. I mean, these are heroes, as you've mentioned, uh, the admiration you have for your pastor. Um, they are working hard. They are responding to changing uh, uh, landscapes around them and doing a phenomenal job doing it. But many of them, uh, there's a... There, there's a weariness because the pace is uh, not just 24/7, but the but the work in those 24/7s uh, is uh, pretty intense. And so, um, with regard to the pastoral care responsibilities, as well as trying to shepherd a congregation through uh, some some uncertain territory. So, anyway, I think the the pace is really important. That pastors say, you know. Listen, I, I do need a day off, and you are giving away a retreat to the Cove. Uh, every, uh, almost every church 
could find a, a nice uh, condo for their, their pastor to uh, spend three or four nights uh, at the beach or in the mountains or something like that. So those, those are encouragements. I will say this, Carmen, about Pastor Appreciation Month. And it's important that congregation members know that pastors feel really weird about that. Like it's a strange <laughs> dynamic, you know, like, oh, this is the month where, you, you know, I get appreciated. And, you know, obviously promoting it and finding space on the platform for that to happen is really awkward for most pastors. So I would just encourage churches, obviously, to use it October as a way to learn and, and express some appreciation. But, but that it's a part of the rhythm every day or every month that uh, just there's a culture in the church that recognizes that the pace that pastors go at, uh, in many cases, is simply not sustainable. If uh, if some folks don't come beside them and encourage them and remind them to, you know, take days off and know that hey, this is a long haul, so everything is not urgent. Everything doesn't have to be solved today, and uh, we can um, we can do our best today and then live to to fight tomorrow uh, as we. Uh, start again. So anyway, it's just really trying to create a culture that's healthy for, for pastors and staff. And then that bleeds down into the church ministry. That bleeds down into the way that church members relate to one another as well. All right. So let's be caring for our pastors by creating a culture of um, of appreciation, a rhythm of sustainable service and Sabbath, um, recognizing our pastors are not immune from all of the realities of life um, and death and constant stress and the effects and impacts that has on their bodies and their relationships. Um, so let's talk, um, uh, do I want to do this is question three, and then how is ministry life shaping my family and me? Yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate the fact that many pastors are asking these questions, like when they they really are asking new questions, not just how can my church grow or how can I reach more people, which is super important and what we why we do this. But there are some nuanced questions in terms of soul care, and these speak to those. Um, I think one of the things, Carmen, that um, Pastor and I were talking about the other day, uh, we didn't really anticipate when we got into ministry the 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 number of broken relationships that would that would take place along the way. A ministry is full of wonderful relationships and wonderful joys and wonderful pinnacles of, you know, delight, honestly. But there's a lot of people along the way that simply just don't follow us. Maybe they hurt us or we hurt them. And so we begin to, that, those things begin to pile up. And um, we, uh, we're not sure what to do with those because we didn't mean to hurt anybody. That's not why we do this. Uh, they didn't mean to hurt us, maybe. Um, that, you know, maybe... Uh, there were misunderstandings or whatever it is. And then there's, you know, there's, so there's these relational dynamics that begin to weigh on pastors. And uh, if over time we allow those things to pile up, they become really heavy and they still are joy. And uh, they begin, they, they're, the, they're the big thing that we see every day. While there's an interstate that's running a full, full blast, we see this one pole, remember the, the pole in the middle of the parking lot, don't look at that, well, that's where you're going to, that's where you're going to steer to if you pay attention to that one pole in the parking lot. And so uh, we, we get our eyes on that one relationship or that group of relationships that have been so difficult. And so uh, I think um, just uh, this, this um, hemorrhaging of joy that I speak of uh, can be a reality for many pastors because 
of that. And, and so we're asking the question, is this good for me? Is this good for my family? And, um, uh, from personal experience, gospel ministry is wonderful for my, you know, our families get to see up close God working, uh, in some incredible ways. We get a front row seat to all that. Um, but it can also create a, an opportunity for the enemy to, you know, to, to distract us and, uh, to put us in isolation and, um, create spiritual shame and, and uh, in those senses of, of, I failed and I failed this person, therefore I failed. And, um, so, there's there's all that baggage, if you will. I don't love that term, but there's all this weight that uh, can pile up over time if pastors don't uh, work through that and lay that at the feet of Jesus and um, and find people to talk to. You know, we're not really sure who to talk to if we're too vulnerable with the wrong people that can undermine our leadership or come back on us somehow. So for pastors to have people that they can go to so that they can keep growing, so that they can keep uh, moving forward, because most of them really want to and are incredibly passionate about their work. So we just, again, want to create a culture that uh, there's people around us that are uh, cheering us on and are actually serving in the trenches with us at a, at a heart level. I think on this, uh, how is the ministry shaping my family and me question, I, you know, I'm just always mindful that uh, everything the pastor deals with, the pastor's family deals with as well. And there are things the pastor's family is dealing with that um, are unknown to the rest of us. Uh, they are real people. They have all of the same real challenges that the rest of us have. Um, and and they deal with all of the realities of every member of the congregation, known not only to them, but, you know, part part of, of their life as um, as the pastor is genuinely tending to the sheep. So um, let's be mindful of all of that. We need to leave it right there. Daryl, as always, thank you so much. Let's be encouraging our pastors, considering the load they're bearing. Let's be people who um, uh, who care for them um, and who um, and who are there for them in really tangible ways. I mean, this is a this is a brother and sister in Christ labor. This is a body labor. This isn't just the labor of one. And so uh, let's be people who encourage our pastors today and every day. Daryl, as always, thank you so much. Hey, same here, Carmen. Thanks for all you're doing. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right, there's a lot going on in the world. Many of you ask from time to time, like, who's out there aggregating for me things that I should be considering uh, reading? How do I know where to turn to read maybe more broadly and more righteously. Uh, So Jeff Bilbro aggregates uh, something called the water dripper, and he does so at frontporchrepublic.com. And I've been um, surveying what Jeff's been posting on the water dripper and thought that uh, there's some things here we ought to talk about today. So let's start with this. Has America lost its story? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. True or false, teens want their parents to be their friends. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. After years of working with kids, I can confidently say the answer is false. I frequently hear teens say, I wish my parents would be what I need them to be and not what I want them to be. Hard to believe your teens don't actually want you to be their friend. Don't be a parent, be a parent. If you're not taking a stand, stick to your guns and let the consequences come. 
If you don't, you're only causing your teen's immaturity to flourish. So take a look at your parenting style and ask yourself this question. Am I a peer or a parent? Want to bring Mark to your church or community? Find out how to request an event in your area when you visit parentingtodaysteens.org. professor at Grove City College. He also aggregates uh, something that I really like called the water dripper at frontporchrepublic.com. So easiest way, uh, well, the absolute easiest way to get there is to just send me a text message of any kind at 877-933-2484, and I'll send you the direct link. You can also go to frontporchrepublic.com. What you're looking for is the water dripper, or you can go to Jeff's website and find the link there as well, Jeff Bilbro, B-I-L-B-R-O.com. Hey, welcome back, man. Hey, thanks. It's good to be with you this morning. Thank you so much. So one of the pieces you have uh, linked here is, Has America Lost Its Story? What, um, what is Wilford McClay arguing here? Yeah, I think, you know, Bill, Bill McClay wrote this book maybe two years ago now uh, called America, the Land of Hope, which tries to be a, you know, uh, a narrative overview of American history in a readable f- format and a readable length. It's not an easy task. But I think he's one of the most thoughtful historians right now who is trying to navigate the tension between, um, you know, acknowledging the many different threads of uh, American history, acknowledging the many shortcomings, but still trying to tell a coherent and uh, aspirational narrative about um, the country. And uh, as he argues in this piece, it's uh, a, a community needs a shared memory and a shared narrative, even if that narrative has many rooms and many um, uh, yeah, many, many aspects. It doesn't have to be narrow or simplistic, but it needs to be coherent. I think the, the conversation about a coherent story, um, when we, you know, we have these conversations about like biblical worldview and we throw yeah. that out there, like everybody knows what we're talking about. And the reality is we're not necessarily even very good at telling the big story. Um, we are we are particularly good at telling tiny little stories, but not necessarily connecting right. those to the bigger story. And so I think that's all a part of this. Like there's a discipline necessary in the Christian life um, that I would be able to tell the big story, the giant, big, redemptive narrative, all of history, God story. And then I would be able to tell my story and a particular part of my story as a part of that. That's a good. That's a good point, and I think one of the most beautiful images of that, to my mind anyway, is those old Bibles, those old family Bibles. You know, it used to be every American family, pretty much household, pretty much had one of these. And in the middle, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there would be a spot for your family genealogy, your family tree, and you would put in your marriages and and births and deaths and uh, you know those sort of facts about your family. And that's important because it's a it's a physical, tangible way of imagining your family narrative, your individual family narrative, 
within the context of God's grand narrative. Um, so I just think that was a beautiful uh, symbol and representation of what you just articulated, the need to kind of narrate our own life stories, but also see how they are part of a, a larger Christian story. Now you have me wondering how many people in the next generation will uh, see that family Bible as valuable um, and, like, will those continue to be passed on generation to generation? And are people adding to them? Like, are are, are they yeah. up to date? I mean, I totally wonder about that, right? I think we rely on things like Ancestry.com to do all the hard work for us. Um, and it's always interesting to me, I mean, now that you make this observation about family Bibles, it's so interesting to me the places people go um, to find out the information about their ancestors, they go to churches and they go to baptismal yeah. records. And those aren't going to exist because fewer yeah. and fewer people are being baptized. And even those who are being baptized aren't necessarily being baptized in the kind of churches that keep the kinds of records that are preserved over generations. And so I just like people need to be mindful that the um, it's important to know your own story and be chronicling it in um, in a way that it might be preserved generation to generation. Um, so that's all just super interesting. I just thank you for that. All right, let's um let's talk about uh, school. Like, right, you're back in school. Um, yep. College is back in session. Increasingly, there is this expectation that we go to college in order to prepare us for a particular job. Um, talk with us about what's going on today in the quote-unquote academy um, and what people have in terms of their expectations of it and what you think education should be for? <laughs> Carmen, that's a huge question. I know. I'm the um, huge question girl. I'm the get up okay. in the morning and just ask huge questions. That's me. Okay. I need to drink more coffee before I'm on here. <laughs> um, no, I think that's a, 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 you've uh, articulated a question that many parents and uh, prospective college students have on their minds. Of course, many of us in the academy are, are wrestling with that as well. College is expensive, right? And if you're going to pay that much money for college, it makes sense that you would expect some kind of an economic return on your investment, that you can pay that off, and that's a good financial investment. So I certainly get the um, kind of career-focused orientation that many of our students come come to college with. On the other hand, uh, as, a, as an English professor, as a, as a Christian liberal arts guy, I think it's really important that a college education form students to be um, good, Christian members of their communities and their churches and the broader society. Uh, you might talk about this as a citizenship formation or just, you know, uh, a church membership formation. Um, and so I want to also uh, provide students, you know, with, with uh, the, the knowledge and the practices of thinking, the habits of thought, and, and the, uh, I guess, introduction to this rich tradition of Christian thought that they need to do that well. And sometimes those two ends can be in some kind of attention. But I think uh, a lot of good, you know, that the best, in my mind, Christian liberal arts schools are finding ways to, um, to, yeah, to maintain that tension and to, to try to do both of those, those ends. Yeah, and the and the piece that you highlighted, um, the word indoctrination is included in there, yeah. and that that also sparked me um, to think about uh, what 
students are getting when they go to college that might be a right. surprise to their parents. Um, and if you're sending, you know, if you're sending your student to a school that does not, I mean, just right, right. out there in the front lead with, hey, we uh, we are operating out of a Christian worldview, and that is what your kid is going to get when they come here. Um, if they're not saying that, then I think you can trust us that your kid is being indoctrinated in uh, in teachings that are contrary, expressly contrary uh, to the Bible. I mean, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, and, and I would say uh, it's tricky. On the one hand, there is a spectrum amongst um, Christian amongst colleges between, say, ones that try to maintain orthodox confessions and, uh, you know, try to teach teach students within a Christian tradition, and those that have no claims in that direction or, um, you know, have some vague language in their mission statement but don't actually do anything like that. So that is a very real tension. And, yes, you have to – or not, not tension, spectrum. And you have to, as a parent or, or student, um, do the legwork and talk to faculty and talk to – students and figure out what's going on there. The other dimension, though, I think, is, um, you know, which some some students, sorry, some institutions will, uh, you know, give lip service to Orthodox Christian teaching, but also then don't really provide opportunities for formation for students in those areas because they're more uh, professionalized and focused on just getting a, a, a training degree. Um, so I think the sweet spot is the few universities that are left that are orthodox, um, that are explicitly trying to form students in a Christian tradition, but that are also trying to give them the, or are committed to giving them that theological and virtue formation that's, uh, that you might see in the gen ed courses or in uh, sort of student life areas, in the chapel programs. Um, so that they don't just walk out of there with a degree in engineering or nursing or whichever, which is are great things, but that they also walk out uh, having wrestled with some of the foundational questions about what it means to be human, uh, what it means to be, you know, uh, a Christian, what the church tradition is, etc. All right, we're talking with Jeff Bilbro from Grove City College. Uh, you can find his aggregated list of things we all ought to be reading. Um, at frontporchrepublic.com. You're looking for the water dipper. No R. It's not a dripper, although it is, but it's the water dipper. Thank you for those of you who have texted in. Um, I will uh, send you the link directly if you text me anything this morning at 877-933-2484. You can also get it directly from Jeff's website, Jeff Bilbro, B-I-L-B-R-O.com. And he and I will be right back to answer the question... What is the problem? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, because I'm always trying to get you to read stuff that you're not uh, already reading, please go with me to Jeff Bilbro's uh, The Water Dipper at Front Porch Republic, where you will find uh, things like we're going to talk about next. So, Jeff, explain to us... Why problematic? What's what's problematic? What is the problem? What's going on? <laughs> uh, I love this essay. This is by Teresa uh, Bijan in The Atlantic, and she's a professor of poli-sci at, at, at Oxford. And uh, when I read this, uh, it just resonated with me because I had just finished reading an academic essay uh, about 
the, the agrarian tradition in, in, in America, that the conclusion was basically that some agrarian thinkers are problematic, I and mean, that's in the title. But the author will never come out and articulate, you know, what's, what is the problem and how we might go about assessing its, you know, reach, like can we, can we name the problem and talk about what aspects of the tradition are still good and which ones we should, uh, we should be wary of. And I, I think she just nails it that so often, in academic contexts at least, we kind of assume a certain shared moral sensibility and then refuse or, or don't bother spelling out um, what are the bounds of that, of that moral sensibility and, and what things we find problematic. So it functions as a shorthand that um, makes us so we don't have to think, so we don't have to do the work of difficult, nuanced judgment. Yeah, um, I mean, on and on and on. Um, there's a uh, there's a plea for using more precise language because exactly. uh, the the use of the word problematic, uh, I can tell you, is problematic. Yeah, it, and you right? see this. You know, yeah, you see mm -hmm. this in social media, like Facebook posts, when people are uh, just kind of highlighting stuff, news, events, phenomenon that they disagree with, but um, they don't take the time to sort of think through which aspects of this do I disagree with and why? Yeah, this is the talking points issue, right? So anytime yeah. somebody parrots to me a talking point in relationship or answer to a really substantive question um, or challenge that we're facing in the culture, I am that tiresome person who says, okay, let's, um, let's go, uh, I mean, I'm saying this in my own mind, let's go one layer deeper here. Can yeah. they? Can they articulate this position beyond parroting a talking point. Um, and if they can't, then I'm done. Like that is a conversation that I'm done with. If all you're, if all you can do is parrot to me a talking point, that's, we're moving on to a different subject. I'm not going to, I'm not going to hang with you. You haven't actually thought deeply enough about the subject matter to, to plumb um, why you think, why you are aligning your thinking with a particular talking point. Like I want people to be thinking much more deeply about what we're saying um, and instead of just saying what we hear other people saying about something. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, we have a lot of topics to think about, a lot of events to sort through. It can be chaotic out there. And so it's always easier to just assume that, uh, you know, whatever group you think you're part of or celebrity we follow on social media, whatever they think, ah, that must be right. But um, that's really, really inhibits dialogue, it inhibits nuance, it makes it difficult for us to understand people with whom we disagree with even if we just dismiss them without thinking through, you know, also what areas we might find common ground on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the starting point, right? Like, let's let's find uh, the common ground upon which we can both stand. Um, I would argue, you know, that is being sure that somebody understands we stand on equal footing at creation, at the cross and in yeah. the kingdom. From there, we can talk about anything. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, what a joy. Thank you, as always, so much. I know you have other things to get off to this morning. Thank you for joining us this morning on Mornings with Carmen. You guys can find Jeff Bilbro online. His website is jeffbilbro, B-I-L-B-R-O.com. You can find The Water Dipper, this aggregated list of great things you could be reading at frontporchrepublic.com. We'll be right back. 
All right, so we talked um, at some point earlier this week about writing letters and how few people write actual letters today and send actual letters, which got me thinking about some really good letters in the Bible, right? Well, all the letters in the Bible are really good. So if you were thinking to yourself, all right, so I have this opportunity during Pastor Appreciation Month to come up with a way to bless my pastor and maybe even to speak a good word. Like, why do we wait until people die to eulogize them? So what would it look like to speak a good word, eulogy, to speak a good word to my pastor and to do so in a letter? So here you go. Here's like the combined assignment. I want you to um, read. Let's just do First and Second Timothy. Like, right, those are actually, you know, pastoral epistles. You could, you could do uh, Philemon as well. Um, so, but I think First and Second... Second Timothy, good places to look, very specific pastoral epistles. So you're looking at letters that Paul wrote, all right? So this gets us into the Word where we need to be before we get out there into the world that God so loves. And so that's a part of this, examining letter writing and reexamining our own letter writing, and then sitting down and sort of reversing the process. So what might it look like to write a pastoral epistle to your pastor, not instructing them, but thanking them, acknowledging them, recognizing uh, the pastoral blessings that you have received from them. Um, I had a friend uh, once, his name is John, who who talked about the reality as a pastor that these sheep bite. These sheep bite. It's just consider for a moment, let's not be the sheep that bite. Um, let's not bite the hand that feeds us. Let's instead write our pastors a letter. Let's write some pastoral epistles. Um, let's tenderize our hearts to that project by reading First and Second Timothy and then writing a letter like that only in reverse to our pastor or pastors. There you go. There's an idea for the day. Um, all right. Where in the word are you today? I have recommended the first couple of chapters of Matthew, the first couple of chapters of Luke, as we recognize the, uh, the way God delivers Jesus unto us at Christmas. That's a part of the supply chain conversation people are having in the culture today. Now I'm recommending you read First and Second Timothy and then write a letter like it only in reverse to your pastor. Let's get into the Word of God and then let's get the Word of God into the world. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.